If I could take you on a safari all day and night, I would. But unfortunately, it's not always the best time to see the animals. Now, in between safaris, you can watch the Wild Earth channel with loads of extra shows. If you have a connected television, Apple TV or Roku box, then download the Wild Earth app. And if not, then just find it on the App Store on your phone. All right. Uh, I'm Catherine Mazzone here on behalf of Mojo Streaming, and I'm thrilled to introduce a guest we've been dying to have on. Her name is Lauren Arthur, and she's a conservation storyteller. I was just telling her how much I adore that title and would love to have a job like that. Uh, so I just want to start off really by asking you what a conservation storyteller is. Oh, hi there. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes. Um, it's actually becoming quite a common term now, you know, conservation storyteller. So I guess it's quite broad in what it actually is. Um, my career is really diverse, coming from a quite heavily scientific background where I really thought I would go into science and I gravitated a little bit more away from that and I ended up in production where I was in front of the camera telling stories. And that's great, that's fantastic. Stories are what people relate to. They're that emotional connection between a fact and how you are gonna make people feel about that fact. And they really sort of, I really believe that, especially visual storytelling, because we are all visual beings, at least our species, um, is really the way forward to fuel change for our planet. So from being in front of the camera on Wild Earth TV and telling stories, I also realized I could use my skills as a storyteller to encourage others to tell their stories, indigenous stories and people that have possibly lived with animals or their, all their lives or worked with animals. And I realized that I don't have to be the voice telling the story to be a storyteller. So when I say conservation storyteller, that will involve people and culture and wildlife and landscapes and bring it all together to tell a story. And I can be the one behind the camera assisting those people, listening, interacting, engaging. And that's sort of my definition of being a conservation storyteller. Awesome. So how important is it for you to find stories that haven't been told yet or unique perspectives? You were talking about culture. How significant is that in your career right now? It's so significant. And I think um, wildlife filmmaking and storytelling is becoming so cool and fashionable and everyone wants to do it of course because it's amazing so I think you've really got to have that deep understanding to find those stories that haven't been told before or as you say find a unique perspective what's the perspective that's missing for example maybe the story of the river has been told a hundred times but has the story of the fish in that river been told you know so it's just looking at things from a different perspective to give us more understanding about our world and I think my position in Africa right now has, has really opened my eyes to all the incredible stories that are out there that should be shared with the world. 
So I want to get a little background on you. Where are you from originally, Lauren? <laughs> I'm from Scotland, um, which is absolutely miles away from anything that I'm doing right now. Yeah. Um, and I've been traveling for a really, really long time. So I didn't really expect to end up in Africa or South Africa, um, but I'm here and I love it. And I couldn't honestly imagine being anywhere else. Tell me what you would do in a normal day as a conservation storyteller. Well, it's actually all very new for us. So I was working for Wild Earth TV um, mm -hmm. until recently, and I'm not sure if you know what it is, but it's a live TV show where you drive around and um, it's completely live. You take people on a live safari drive and just see what you can find. Something Sometimes you'll find everything, sometimes you will find absolutely nothing. And that's really when you learn to tell stories. Um, yep. But we have left Wilder TV for now, and my partner and I are sort of pursuing the conservation storytelling avenue. So we're at the stage where we're working with a lot of different organizations. Um, some I can talk with, some I can't, I can't right now, mm -hmm. um, who all have a story to tell. So even these ecologies, even these people that have started a business long ago in a wildlife space or in a sort of indigenous community, actually start to work together with the communities or for the wildlife and they also have their own story to tell um, so one of probably the most famous and iconic organization that we're working with right now is WWF International um, and we are telling sort of conservation stories for them our first story that we released was on the Ethiopian wolf um, so are not many people know that Ethiopia even has a wolf um, and definitely people don't know that there's only 500 remaining. Um, Incredible. It's Africa's most endangered carnivore and they are the most beautiful, majestic, gorgeous little things and they are really, really battling against extinction. So mm -hmm. just to be able to go to Ethiopia and tell that story and meet people to help tell that story was really incredible. Um, so every day is different and it's, a, it's very much a new venture for us right now. I'm really curious what it's like to work with people who might never have interacted with a big camera before. And then you're, you're like, oh, hey, uh, I want to ask you some questions or how does that work? Um, well, to be honest, our camera is very, very small. Okay. You um, have a small one. I saw a big it's... one in one of those pictures. <laughs> well, luckily this one's quite small. Um, so it's not okay. too intrusive. Cameras are getting smaller and smaller these days. Um, but you have to go in with the right approach. Camera mm -hmm. doesn't come out until much later. Go in there and really spend time with people. Um, we spent a lot of time in Ethiopia with guides who have worked with the wolves all their life. They can identify these wolves. They can tell you the history of these wolves, which pack it belongs to, its behavior, its history. And that is amazing. Get to know these people, listen to their story, and again, interact and engage. And only then start to explain that you know, you would really like to film them so that the whole world can see the, listen to these stories and see them. And it takes a while before you bring that camera out. I would never go into any area in any country with the camera out, you know, make, integrate first. And of course, you've always got to do everything very respectfully and just make sure that people do want to be on camera. And then if they do, it always helps to since I have been on camera myself, it always helps me to sort of show how it's done. It's not easy when someone puts a camera in your face. It's actually um, 
quite nerve wracking. I still get nervous. Um, so I think it helps when people realize that you're also nervous, you know, mm -hmm. and to slowly, slowly just start to forget the cameras there and make it as authentic as possible. Yeah, that's so cool. You mentioned your work with WWF and uh, the amazing piece you did about the wolves in Ethiopia. I know that you're originally a marine biologist uh, yes. and you've, you've been on this journey, but you're kind of circling back around with uh, the celebration of Ocean's Day coming up in June. Can we get a little information about a little sneak peek kind of thing about what that's gonna be like? Sure. Um, so the WWF is obviously a huge organization and they appointed um, 10 voices around the globe. And my partner and I were selected to be one voice together, um, which is really incredible. It was quite a momentous moment to tell stories. And naturally we did Ethiopia. And then we thought, what can we really do next that we know we're good at, that we know we can tell that story. And my background i actually worked in the maldives for over seven years and that country is, is almost part of me i will forever see that as my sort of second home and i thought let's go back to the maldives and tell the story a lot of people think the maldives is this little island nation which it is um they're going to sink with climate change which we don't know and you lie on the beach drink cocktails which you can but there is so much more to that country from the amazing people, the culture and the marine life. They don't have too many terrestrial animals naturally, but the marine life is absolutely phenomenal. So on World Ocean Day, which is the 8th of June, we're actually going to release our second series. And it's three different episodes. First episode is on the sharks of Maldives. Wow. Second episode is on manta rays, sharks closest relative. And then the third episode is actually on seagrass. Hmm. And all three of those topics are so tightly interconnected and intertwined, but I'll wait until you see the series to find out exactly how. <laughs> yeah, you really have my mind thinking when you mentioned seagrass. I'm, how can that be interesting? But I have a feeling there's some significance to it that I don't know about yet. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I have, I am very well traveled and, and very blessed to be so. And I think swimming in the seagrass beds for the first time was one of the most exciting things I've ever done. I did not expect it to be as incredible as it really is. It's a completely misunderstood and underappreciated habitat. And it is phenomenal when you actually get to swim in those meadows and film what's in the meadows. And yeah, it has a really tight relationship to sharks. Yeah, very cool. I'm, I'm also interested in how you, you mentioned kind of the evolution of storytelling and how, you know, the cameras are getting smaller and everybody's doing it. So what do you foresee happening in the conservation storytelling arena um, as it evolves. Where do you see this going next as far as you're concerned? Well, I think, you know, for a long time, the BBC, for example, dominated the sort of, oh, they probably still do, but the wildlife space. And they are incredible and what they produce is incredible. And it's, it's so perfect. I personally prefer more authentic um, 
productions where maybe it's just the guy with the handheld camera and maybe the camera shakes a little bit, but that's okay because you're walking up a mountain and maybe mm. that shot of the animal is not hundred percent perfect because it jumped out a tree or I, I think that's why they the brought that out in me. Um, so I think visual storytelling, conservation storytelling is becoming more and more authentic in that realm. Anyone can pick up a camera. I mean, everyone has a phone. Yeah. And although that's not high quality, I mean, anyone really can film anything. And I think the fact that stories are growing and the popularity of stories is growing, that can only be a good thing. There are so many stories to tell and you can come at them from different angles. So yes, there's a shot. So someone might want to talk about how scary sharks are, which they're not at all. Or someone might want to talk about the shark's role in the ecosystem. Or someone might want to talk about how sharks hunt. And, you know, there's so many different avenues to, to one subject. And I think with all the creative individuals around the world, it's unique to see how different people tell different stories. So I think the space is going to continue to expand and expand and expand. And I really do believe there is room for everyone to tell stories. And you have to have that creative ability to see the story and know exactly how you want to tell it. So I think it's only going to get better. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that. And I think of citizen journalism just automatically because everyone can pick up a camera, like you said, but there's also responsibility in your storytelling. So if someone does want to get involved, can you kind of explain what the responsibility behind conservation storytelling might be? Absolutely. I think it really depends on, on what story you are telling, but what you have to remember, especially with Indigenous storytelling, which is so powerful these days. I actually saw a quote the other day that said Indigenous storytelling is science. Mm. Wow. And it is. And when you are sort of going down that route, I think it's really important to remember that it's not your story you are just the person weaving that story and allowing that story to happen, helping it to happen in a sort of producer capacity, but it's not your story. And I think anyone that wants to sort of get started in that space, especially indigenous storytelling, must be aware that it's not your story and have your the, the right team around you um, when going into different communities. It's really important that I think maybe back in the day, I read a really interesting report on National Geographic that said um, a lot of communities are still reeling from mistakes that have been made in the past. And we also have to understand that mistakes have been made, mistakes will always be made. And it's just important to go forward in that space, knowing that that's the story you want to tell, but you really, really have to understand that it's not your story. You can't put your mark on that story verbally. Of course, visually, we're the ones putting it together. Sure. And I think it's just really important to do your research and background check and just know that, just go in with the knowledge that mistakes will have been made in the past. That's good advice. By other foreigners. And you right. just have to take that sort of on the on the chin and just realize that going into a community just just be aware of that I think I think that was a really crucial piece of advice actually when I read that yeah I mean I'm sure it I'm not sure but I would think that it could be discouraging when you come into a place and you try to make your case or you try to have a conversation and they brush you off because of what somebody else did and you're like but that wasn't me I that wasn't me I'm different Exactly. I mean, yeah. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you push past these first impressions? 
I mean, I, luckily, I've never sort of encountered that to date. Yeah. Um, I've just done a lot of research for different projects that we are working on. Um, I'm a scientist. So I love to sit and research. I need to know the ins and out of the story. And it was just during that research phase recently that I thought aha there is a way to tell a story properly I mean if you're just filming the lions of the Mara then I'm sure the lions are not going to be too bothered about your presence but when you involve people anyone from all around the world you just have to remember that you know that mistakes have been made and I luckily haven't encountered it I mean I worked in the Maldives for again seven plus years so I I I'm very integrated there. So I didn't have to consider that. But on various projects that we are working on right now, we do have to consider that. And it's just been quite a learning curve for me. It's interesting that there are not a whole lot of people that I've encountered who do, well, I can think of one now that I said that, who do both humanity and wildlife. It's usually, oh, I'm focused on wildlife conservation or yeah. I'm focused on telling the story of humans and culture. How, I'm curious, how did you get involved with both? It's so simple. They can't exist without each other. Mm -hmm. So another reason, and I feel like I'm dissing the BBC here. I'm not at all. The productions are incre no, no, incredible. No. But the, the reason I sometimes feel disconnected from their productions is because they don't show the human element. I mean, recently they are now. I think they're doing um, our changing planet. But, you know, to see these wild species that are so pristine and there's no visible sign of any human presence, that's not real. If you try and think in your mind, there is absolutely nowhere on our planet where humans haven't touched. I mean, we've even been to the moon, apparently. So when you are filming obviously you want that pristine shot of the, of the lion walking through the grass but there could be a hut there where the ranger stays or the anti-poaching unit stays or even a community and that's always cropped out of the frame and i think it was my work through wild earth because everything was always live we never had the choice if, if we walk into the anti-poaching unit they're there hi hi we see you we can't crop you out or edit you out or pretend you're not there because you are there and you're very much part of that unit I mean you protect our rhinos but I mean that's maybe a silly example there's electricity pylons there is even just carvings and some rocks in the Kalahari there is human presence everywhere we go to the North Pole we go to the South Pole we climb every mountain we go into the jungle so I realized that you can actually crop humans out of the story now we're not separate so when you are telling a wildlife story, very often, I mean, not always, but very often there is a human story linked in there as well. And I think it's important that you have to be able to tell both. We're very much part of the story. What are the kind of stories that uh, where humans would be involved with wildlife? these behind the scenes things that you've seen live, I guess, on Wild Earth? Oh, I mean, live, we've seen so many things live, not necessarily negative, but just living in that space in the Savvy Sands. I mean, it is still classified as a, as a wild space. It borders the Kruger and human wildlife conflict there is, is a big problem. Mm. And 
I hate to say this right now because I just saw some bad news on my phone about 10 minutes before this podcast. But prior to that bad news, um, maybe just a little under a year ago, one of our favorite leopards that we followed, and he was a magnificent creature that I absolutely adored and spent so much time with, was actually shot. And he had wandered out of the reserve and I was actually the last person to see him and I saw him walking out of the reserve and I remember thinking oh boy come back you know you're going in the wrong direction and he ended up in in a village in a sort of local community that neighbors the Sabi Sands and he was hungry so he started attacking this woman's goats Hmm. Now she saw him, she can see him hiding, she can hear the murders and he was comfortable. He's a very relaxed leopard actually. And he ended up sort of just living in her garden. Now she has children and the goats are also her entire livelihood. So the management of the area came out and he was eventually shot. And that was the management's decision. But there was an outcry and a lot of people reacted very negatively and I am sometimes call them the armchair armchair critics you know those people that have never been into the field and don't really understand the situation but have an opinion and it was a very negative situation because a leopard was killed not only was he a leopard he was a well-known leopard he was a bit of a celebrity and I'm not joking I believe but what you've got to realize is human wildlife conflict is across the board especially in Africa I would say Africa of all the maybe South America but Africa of all the continents it's a huge problem not just in South Africa but all the way up and it's so much more common than you think and I think that by that situation coming out by it coming to light I spoke about it live was a good thing you've got to make people aware that as the human race uh, is expanding and populations are just expanding across the globe we're not getting any smaller that we are making those wildlife species smaller and smaller and smaller and the closer people live to these wildlife species especially indigenous communities there is going to be conflict and instead of being in an uproar like oh why was that leopard shot it's devastating that leopard was shot I loved him dearly, but it highlights an issue here and it highlights something that needs to be spoken about and it needs to be realistically spoken about, not on emotion. I'm a very emotional person. I cried for days when I found that out, but the realistic part of me knows that it's an issue and it has to be looked at by all the sort of parks, boards and all the different management programs that are there. And it's not just a problem here. And I think it's just not spoken enough. And I read a fantastic book lately by a South African author called Adam Cruz. And the book is called, um, It's Not About the Bats. And it starts off very much about COVID, the pandemic, our relationship with nature, what went wrong there, how it really wasn't about the bats. We wanted to blame the bats, but bats are actually fantastic. And it's not about the bats. Yes, they do carry the COVID strain, but it's not about that. And it's a fantastic book that talks about trophy hunting. It talks about canned hunting. It talks about all the issues in South Africa, especially human wildlife conflict. And that book was a real turning point in my um, thinking and I think everyone needs to read that because so honest and it just puts things on a different perspective and I think to wrap this long story up you need to be able to look at a situation and 
see all different perspectives. There's a lot of people that just react. We're very reactive. And we need to stop that. We think, okay, I'm very sad about what's happened, but why is this happening? And look at all the different sides of the coin. That was that woman's entire livelihood. Mm-hmm. She had children. There was a reason that that decision was made. And yeah, just going back to your original question, that's one of the main things I, I saw, I experienced. There's another piece of news that's happened. Something again is very similar to that has happened in that area in South Africa. And I think just needs to be spoken instead of sort of covered up you know oh, that animal's dead let's hide it, it needs to be more sort of made public if you like yeah so there's an opportunity for more storytelling about like you said the human and animal interaction there's there's exactly. room for growth there yeah there is there is and it's not a good situation but we're expanding i mean even in ethiopia they're having huge problems right now with overpopulation and there just is no space it's the second most populous country in africa and it's just expanding at an unsustainable rate so people are then moving into the mountains they're moving into rural areas where they can farm they can still have their protein and when there's no space at the bottom of the mountain they're then starting to climb up the mountain and then they're taking away habitat for all these other animals including the wolf and that's one of the main problems in Ethiopia right now. Humans are taking over wild spaces. I really don't believe that humans should sort of go into a wildlife space to interact. And I think a lot of people forget that. And I think there's something they call the Sabi Sands complacency syndrome, where the animals are very habituated in that wild space that you start to think, oh, I know this animal. Like you become very relaxed and you become complacent. So in my job, I always had to slap myself, don't become complacent, don't. And if I see myself doing it, I would really try and shake it out because it's not a healthy mindset. So interact, no, but there's so many positive um, reasons for being able to visit a wild wild space where there is wildlife Um, and just observe them in their natural habitat. That sort of feeling of being next to a wild animal and just watching it go about its daily life and know that on some level in that wildlife space, it might be protected. It's just the most incredible thing in the world. And I think it connects us to nature. And that's been a big problem with the world lately. We're very disconnected from it, you know, us and them, and we're not, we're very much part of it. We've just forgotten that. And I think there is so, there are so many reasons that visiting a wildlife space is amazing but interacting no I would definitely not be a poster girl for that in any way shape or form and there obviously are many examples of feeding and writing and handling oh, yeah, that no. yeah I'm not for um but yeah I think everyone at some point should just get out of their comfort zone and get out of their home and, and go to a wild space even if it is just a mountain and all you see is a rabbit that's okay that's a that's a wild animal it's true though I mean <laughs> I see um that I I actually have a groundhog that lives across the creek from me and every time I see that guy I'm getting out my phone and getting exactly. video because it's just fun right it is fun and the more you watch and observe the more you learn I mean I was never the biggest insect fan I must say but I became obsessed with them. Um, I really got into the world of insects through the help of some books and through also just living in an area where the insect life just flourishes with the rains. And I became really obsessed with insects. I love their little colorful, diverse, crazy world, but their own little soap operas going on, their own little lives. And I think 
you know, the more time you spend out there, the more interesting things you find to look at and yeah. things you want to learn about. And yeah, insects was that for me. Very cool. What else haven't I asked you, Lauren, that you think would be interesting for our viewers? I know there's a ton, but. Oh, goodness. I, I just, I, I've spoken a lot about some crazy topics and I think just to round up, anyone can spend time in nature. You don't have to be a biologist or a scientist or a storyteller or a TV presenter. You know, it all looks very cool on Instagram and Facebook, but actually forget about that. You know, forget about what looks cool and what other people are doing. It's really detrimental to mental, mental health right now. Just really get out there, go somewhere in your own country, even if it is just the farm or um, the local mountain or the woodland or the river, wherever you are in the world. And just really just go and see what's out there and start to just understand your own habitat and how you fit into it. And I really think that's life-changing for some people. It's very healing. And I think the world needs to heal. Sounds like that could be the next step forward is, is encouraging more folks to get outside and commune with nature almost just get back to yeah get back to wildlife and the outdoors back to basics and yeah. you know I still see people throw trash and I just think I I want to just sometimes I've gone up to people and said hey that's not a good thing to do but I can't believe some people still throw trash and things out the windows and I think the more people that reconnect with nature and the environment they will make better decisions Agreed. Or you hope they will. Oh, yeah, that would just be my little piece of advice for everyone. <laughs> you can only hope, right? Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We definitely will be in touch and keep us posted about that June 8th series because I know a lot of people are looking forward to it, including myself. Absolutely. You will be able to see it on WWF's YouTube. So you just need to follow them on Instagram and you'll get all the information. Awesome. We'll provide that link for folks, Lauren. Oh, thank you. Yes, yes. Thank you again. And I hope to talk to you again. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yes, been a pleasure. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye. We're just arriving to Hanifaru, a world-renowned bay. And this is where the manta should be. We are not born with the fear of sharks. I cannot imagine living in a world where I cannot die with sharks. It's very easy for us to underestimate the importance of seagrass. Everything is interconnected.